Hello and welcome to the SDC Fit Learning Podcast. I'll be your host today. My name's Ben Scott. I'll be joined by Jason Galea. Thanks for joining us on our way to create 1 million positive outcomes for personal training clients by 2030. The podcast is brought to you by at STC Fit Learning, a page created to upskill and educate PTs and gym nerds. Also brought to you by at STC Fit, and that's a place for all your online and in-person personal training needs. If you enjoyed today's episodes, please give us a share and tag on the Instawebs. You can tag at STC Fit, at STC Fit Learning, at Ben Scott SC, and at Jason Galea PC. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, so this is actually the second half of episode 100 where Jason and I got a little bit excited and spoke for a little bit too long and thought you guys might get bored of listening to us. So uh, this section is actually going to be about the article I re- released lately about uh, RPE training versus percentage loading. So uh, Tam's going to drop this in and then that'll roll and I'll chat to you guys at the end. Enjoy. There you go. So we move on to RPE. Let's do it. Let's do it. So RPE is fun because through the process of writing this article, and I already had this in my mind in the first place because I take this approach to almost everything. It's like, if you adhere to the principles, there's no right or wrong method. Yeah. As long as it adheres to the principles. So full disclosure, uh, we, all of us coaches at SCC Fit are auto-regulation based coaches. I would say the primary reason for that is because we work with a client base that ranges from people that are fairly new to training right through to, uh, in some cases, international level athletes. So inside that scope, there's a lot of shit that needs to be dealt with on a daily and weekly basis for an individual. I don't have any clients that are paid to train. And I know you don't have any clients that are paid to train. So with that in mind, the idea of auto-regulation appeals to me because I know my life is turbulent at times and my training is affected by that. So it makes sense for me to create a system that allows that flexibility within that. So as we progress through this article, I'm not... Um, we're not shitting on the idea of percentage-based training. I think it has its place. I think absent of a really clear system um, that you want to use and be consistent with for the client's benefit, or you're a younger coach, you don't have the experience of chopping and changing and stuff all the time, then using some combination of both may be actually very beneficial. So you might be using like in a strength setting in particular, um, you might be using like percentage-based loads for your top sets and then RIR or RPE or something in your accessory work. Um, maybe a way that would work. So just to, to understand that, I guess this is looking at this through the lens of who we work with and who most coaches work with to reflect, I guess, for our listeners that are in that space. So new coaches coming through and our clients that range from Gen pop that want to look good and be strong and uh, higher level athletes as well. So the term RPE stands for rate of perceived exertion. 
um, for those who've just heard the term and don't actually know what it means. So the whole idea was to basically formulate a way of scoring how hard shit was. So it was originally introduced as like a track and field thing where you could measure how hard your session was. So you could have hard days, moderate days, easier days um, for recovery. So if you think about like even a field sport athlete, it's like if you, you're going to have lower RPE sessions potentially straight after a game, maybe a higher midweek when you're first away from your requirement to perform again, and then maybe something moderate a few days out. And then if you're going to do anything before, it's going to be really light. So if you're scoring uh, RPE in that context, they're looking at it as over an entire session. So that evolved into um, a guy called Gunnar Borg put it together and he actually went six to 20. Then later on was like, yeah, this six to 20 doesn't really work in the weight room. So let's go to what he called the CR 10, which is, I guess, the first step into what we know RPE to be today. So I had a conversation with a mate of mine who uh, put up a post. Can't remember the, the specifics of it, but it was basically like um, RPE and RPE 10 doesn't always mean X amount of reps left in the tank. And I was like, well, it depends on what model of RPE you're using. Yeah. So I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. So you can call a, a little round gold coin with, does it have a kangaroo on it in Australia? Is that the dollar? I think the dollar's the the kangaroo, man. The, yeah. The, the $2 ones, I don't know, we're talking about dollars, don't worry. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure it's kangaroo, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. I don't really care. The little gold larger circle um, coin that we call a dollar in Australia. If you then went to America and called that a dollar, they'd be like, what the fuck is that? That's not a dollar. We have little pieces of paper with some dude's head on them yeah. that looks the same as our hundreds for some super reason. They don't change colors, but anyway. Hello to our American fans who <laughs> all just left. <laughs> um, so they, the, the word is still a dollar, but they mean different things based on the context. So there over time has evolved two levels of, or two different interpretations of what RPE is. So RPE 10 originally was referred to as like max effort. Then there was heaps that actually didn't have a score. It was just kind of like, yeah. <laughs> so his method was 10 was maximal seven was very hard five was hard and then it worked went down from like somewhat hard moderate easy very easy rest so in between very hard and maximal it was just like a bit harder than very hard but not quite maximal yeah yeah that's hard to interpret yeah which it, that's it. it it is very hard in a weight room to go was that a seven, eight or nine? Oh, fuck. I don't know. <laughs> it was challenging. Pretty, pretty fucking hard, but. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the guys at RTS, um, I should look at his name here somewhere. Is it Purvis or Honor? No, nah, not RTS. Um, uh, different RTS. Mike. Mike someone? Tashira? Yeah, it's him. I probably butchered that, but yeah. Yeah, so so old old mate Mike from RTS yeah. <laughs> pronouncing his last name. Yeah. <laughs> Mike T. Yeah. Um so he put together a little bit of an evolution of that. So ten stayed at maximal effort, but maximal effort then meant you couldn't possibly do another rep in the weight room. So it's like if you tried again, you would fail. Yeah. Then 
he added 0.5s into the spectrum as well. So for the that just to make it more clear, you kind of like fuck. I don't really know if I could have done one more. Then we'll put 9.5. Yeah. Then yeah, definitely could have had one more rep. We're down to nine. Maybe two more reps. 8.5, eight, and so on and so forth, all the way down to 5.5. Under that. Yeah, you probably yeah, it's who probably. fucking knows what it really feels like. You're just guessing. Yeah. It's so like, far away anyway, it doesn't yeah. matter. If you can squat, say you can squat 150 kilos, squatting the bar and squatting 80, the perceived effort isn't really that much greater. Yeah. Um, over a set. So assigning an RPE value at that point is just kind of like eh. it doesn't matter either. Yeah. So they're the two things. I think that's where a lot of people get tripped up. It's like you need to make sure that you understand which model of RPE you're going to use if you're going to use RPE. So what we do um, is, and it's pure just out of like, it removes one less thought from the process. And that is to introduce RIR or reps in reserve, which we've talked about on the, on the podcast at nauseam, which is exactly the same thing. Just instead of counting backwards from 10, we go, Okay, zero means you couldn't do any more. One means you could have done one more. Two means you could have done two more. So once you understand the history of how RPE has evolved, it's like in your head, you're kind of like, if you're a newer to training and and your coach gives you um, RPE nine, it means you had one rep left in the tank. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? But once you understand the evolution of where RPE came from, it makes total sense that that's why we kind of use in that scale. Yeah. to a client who's newer to the idea of auto-regulation saying, just leave one rep in the tank. It's like, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Much more straightforward. Way easier to coach. Yeah. And Dude. when you, yeah. even as an advanced athlete, when you're dying after you set, it's just like, how many more could I have done? And then that's it. Yeah. Do even mid-sets, like, do I have one more? Nah, I don't reckon. Yeah. Like, is that a nine or an eight? You've got to convert it. It's like, I know it's very easy to convert nine. That means one. And like, you can get, learn that and be in the habit of that, but it's just one less step just to uncomplicate shit. Yeah. yeah so yeah. the comparative method that, that you will see this put up against all the times, particularly in the strength space will be percentage of one RM. So yeah. that is fucking, I actually couldn't find where it started. It was like, it's just old. (laughs) (laughs) Really old. Um, So you're you're talking like Russian weightlifting programs, like ages and ages ago, all the shit that like Charles Poliquin used to say that he taught himself Russian so he could read those strength conditioning books. Yeah. It's in there. (laughs) If, if that actually happens. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Charles, don't speak ill of the dead, Jason. (laughs) don't do that to me (laughs) um so there's a thing called uh chart which basically outlines rep ranges um in a set that you would be able to do at a certain percentage of your maximum effort so just like using the top example so 90% 90% of one RM, you're going to be able to do one to two reps, optimal total reps for a session that he kind of put together. Use And this is the method most people that will program based off percentage will use is optimum total reps is going to be seven. And then ranges of reps that are going to be affected is going to be four to 10. 
So again, like we've talked a lot about like quantifying exercise and stuff in our programming modules uh, or our programming episodes. Um, I might get Tam just to put that in the show notes, just to explain how we kind of go into that a little bit deeper in a, in a previous episode, but understanding like if I'm going to write a program, depending on the person's ability to repeat effort, effort, it's going to be one to two reps per set. I'm going to look at trying to achieve around seven. If someone needs to do lots of work, it's going to be closer to four. Uh, sorry, not much work closer to four heaps of work closer to 10, depending on the individual, how strong they are, fatigue, the overall program, all of that shit, all what the minutiae. Optimal reps. Is that in a, like over a sequence of sets is that yeah that's right so essentially if you were doing two reps so it's like it's recommended one to two reps yeah you should be able to do three to four sets yeah yeah and you can do anywhere up to 10 reps which would be five sets correct yeah yeah Yeah. five doubles is going to be pretty tough so that's yeah if you're going up to 10 you're probably maybe doing singles at 90 rather than singles at 95 or something like that. Yeah. So what we then need to look at, and I was like, okay, so let's assume that I'm wrong is how I kind of looked at this and that I've been fucking up for four years using RPE and I should have been using percentages. That was sort of the, the lens I wanted to do this through and try and prove myself wrong. Yeah. Um, so then it wasn't just a sales article for rep and reserve training. Cause that's the method we use. Yeah. <laughs> So there's four main things that we need to consider when using both of the methods. So there's accuracy, auto-regulation, skill and strength adaptations, and the lifter's personality. So when we look at accuracy uh, and compare the two, uh, the study I referenced in the article showed that at worst, the prediction of the rep and reserve. So basically what they did was like, I think it was a bench press and they had to call out how many reps they had left. 93% of the time they were right. And then they showed the more sets that they did, the closer that they got to being bang on. So if you were to apply that over a month of training, then you would get a higher outcome than 93% in theory. And then even without being too biased already, (laughs) but like even when you see it in training, that legit happens. Mm. Legit happens 100%. Yeah. Um, so comparing the one RM, so we use like predictors and stuff for that typically. So to, to train at a percentage load, we would need to then look at, okay, what are you able to lift? And usually we would have to predict that because you're not going to test your one RMs every week to then know what you have to lift that week. So we use prediction formulas. Those happen to be within 3% as well. So in terms of accuracy and applying the methods, they both come out pretty damn good. No prescription was the other thing that we kind of set it up against, um, which we're not going to, I'm just going to kind of run that off the table right now. No prescription is silly. Don't do it. (laughs) Uh, Unless you're a beginner, maybe in your first three to six months, thinking about this stuff doesn't matter. Just think about technical execution um, and kind of training safely. If you train to the point where your technique or skill is going to break down, that's enough. And RIR and percentages don't really matter at that point. Auto-regulation was the next one. And to be honest, this is probably where rep and reserve 
shines because it's a deliberate auto regulation method where percentage based training is a do what you're fucking told method. Yeah. I'm most often, most often. Yeah. So, um, just kind of scroll through this. So there was a study done by Eric Helms and crew that discussed the argument and auto regulation based training could in fact be superior to strength progress when compared to percentage based loading. I'll put that in the show notes. If you guys want to go check that out. Um, but I think the auto regulation thing is really important to consider. If you have a weight written down that you have to lift on that day and that's your goal for the day, you had a fight with your girlfriend last night. You had to go sleep in the spare room. You didn't sleep very well. You, you're still shitty. You had a crappy day. You got traffic on the way to the gym. You missed a meal. You come in and train. And it's like that number on the piece of paper, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger the longer you look at it. Yeah. You're just in a state of that's not conducive to performance. If you had a rep in reserve number sitting there then maybe that's a little bit easier to focus on so i'm going to do what i can today based on my current settings that's going to be two rep in reserve regardless of what that was last week that works two ways so there's old mate that um, got kicked into the spare room or there's someone who is new to a block new to an exercise improving really quickly newer to training whatever reason who's getting technically better like from a skill standpoint they're building strength they're building muscle at a, a fast rate that also gives you the opportunity to surpass what is written on the piece of paper yeah so if you fit walk into the gym and you feel good it's like it doesn't matter what you did last week you're going to rep and reserve too load the fucking plates on let's go uh we're not we're not going slow because the the program told us to we take advantage of those, those times when we do feel really good. Um, the, I guess the trade-off in the, the percentage 1RM model is old mate that's really tired, uh, potentially misses a lift, builds a buttload of fatigue when we talk about stress recovery adaptation and that curve, the SRA curve. If we create too much stress that we're unable to recover from, we actually detrain. Mm. So if you have a week that shit, you underperform and try and overreach due to by increasing tons of fatigue, you may actually detrain that week and potentially the previous week because you've just built even more fatigue over time and you're wondering why your programming is not working. Obviously good coaches will be able to mitigate that and they'll have systems in place for that. But it's like RII is just there. So we had, uh, and just a little note I put there was just like, um, I got asked a question yesterday, like how often do you test a lifter and break their lift? And my answer was like, never. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't need to break someone's lift to find out where they're weak because I'll see it somewhere else. Mm. Um, I don't have to have you fail a deadlift to see that you lose position when that happens. It's going to show up either when you're fatigued or whatever. There'll be a point where I'll go, you have a tendency to do this that's probably where that list is going to break down at maximal effort. So the tying into that in terms of that building a shitload of fatigue, if you were to come in underdone, you have a prescribed weight, you miss that lift. There's like this culture 
uh, inside powerlifting that like the last deadlift should be 14 days before you meet. I can't find it like researched anywhere. It just is a thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's what everyone does. You speak to every coach. They're like 14 days, 10 days, seven days. So 14 for deads, 10 for squats, seven for bench press. Yeah, right. It's just like an unwritten rule that everyone's agreed to. Obviously, it changes based on the individual and stuff. You can use different strategies, but that's baseline for most coaches. So if you miss a lift and we're assuming that to be 100% recovered from a like almost max effort deadlift prior to comp takes 14 days. Missing a lift then is going to have a accumulated effect of fatigue for that period as well. So how long did that set your program back for? How much sooner do you need a deload? How much? And if you're deloading every four weeks instead of every six weeks, how many training weeks do you miss out over a six week block, a six month block or a 12 week, uh, 12 month block? in terms of improving yourself as an athlete over time. I want to be the guy that's doing the most effective weeks in a year, not deloading the most because I overreach all the time. Yeah. So important to consider that. Um, so a note I made in the article too is obviously we're only talking about um, RIR versus percentage. There's a third method that's based around bar speed and speed of lifts which actually looks like it's better than both. Yeah, but right. at the moment, it's about, I think a cheap one's like $1,200 to get a unit that will- That is the Tendo, the Tendo unit, yeah. Yeah, um, which is big, it's sensitive, you have to calibrate it. Uh, you can teach it to learn your lifting style as well. But as a coach, it's like, you can only program so many athletes in there to build the profile of their, their speed profile, for different lifts, it's all pretty complicated. So until there's software that's like, you stick this thing on the collar and off you go, yeah, which there was rumored that it was coming, but we never saw it. So I don't know if the tech... Uh, you know, they, they had them, but I uh, used to be able to put them on the barbells like a magnet. Yeah. But I've, I've read mixed reviews that they were inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of like the Tendo unit is the gold standard and that's really fucking expensive. Yeah. And I'm not going to ask my clients to spend $1,500 and then carry this 10 kilo item around with them to the gym all the time. Sure. Uh, Kabuki strength did some, a range of them, but then they just didn't make the second uh, ver- version. They did the collar. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I just never um, so I would just wonder if there was like a fault in them. So yeah. Maybe- yeah. All they were too complicated to make better. Yeah. So we kind of touched on it earlier. Um, in terms of like how fatigued you are and auto-regulating when you feel shit. And then we touched on, all right, so what about when you feel great or you're a newbie and you're inside that, I would say even 12 months that you're going to get progress week to week. Um, we talk because we run an algorithm that includes both of these that we'll get onto later, but we talk about outrunning the algorithm. So you're going to get better faster than the math suggests. So rep and reserve gives you an open door to do that. Yes. Whereas percentage one RM from a coaching standpoint, it means you would need to watch every single week and go, okay, based on how you performed that, we're going to increase the load next week. Yeah. Or we're going to buy this much. 
and then we're going to increase it by this much and we're going to increase it or decrease it by this much because I fucked it up and we went too far. So having a rep and reserve model allows for that, those two kind of overlap those ones where you're, you're, you're increasing your performance faster, but some days you're going to have off days. And if you submit your videos and they're just like, oh, I felt really shit this day. It's like, what do you do as a coach? You're just kind of guessing what they need to do next week. Maybe you say, we'll just keep the weight the same. And then you maybe lost a week that they felt better that following week and they could have done more. I know I'm leaning super heavy to rep and reserve and I'm totally failing at like trying to prove myself wrong. But. Be neutral. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although this is probably a winner, a, a strong win category for the percentage one RM group. And that's like the lifter's personality. So if I write down on a piece of paper how much weight you have to lift, that's how much weight you have to lift. And if you deliberately lift more than that, you know for a fact you've gone off program. It's like, listen here, that's not what you were told to do. <laughs> and as a coach, that gives you a little bit of armor, right? Whereas rep and reserve, it's like, nah, coach, that was, that was a nine. It's like, motherfucker, that was a 12. <laughs> like, you good morning to the shit out of that squat. Tremor yeah. all the way up and I thought you were going to die. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so. You're discussing that subjectivity over it is probably a limitation. Yeah, and I've had clients that are like that, that are just fucking bullet a gate. You program RPE 8, it's an RPE 11. It's like, dude, yeah. what are you doing? And then it's like, oh, this hurts. Three weeks later, you're like, yeah, of course it fucking hurts. <laughs> Don't listen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the volume that I've prescribed is predicated on the level of fatigue that you're producing and you've just doubled your, like, or just use an arbitrary number. You've just, like, multiplied your fatigue just in those two reps exponentially. Um, so that's a consideration. So yeah, definitely percentage one RM and that, that really clear lift this much weight does mitigate that a bit. The other one is like the overthinker who wants to have the perfect technique. Um, and, and personally, I probably fall into this side a lot mm. where it's like, I want that rep to be just on all the time, which will maybe kind of being in a rep and reserve model mean that I underlift a little bit too much. But thinking about in the grand scheme of things, from a coach's standpoint, would I rather program someone who undershoots a little bit and be able to just add more volume? Probably works better than someone who continuously overshoots and I have to fucking keep chasing, reducing volume. because Yeah, I'm somewhere else down the line, yeah. Because <laughs> typically if you are undershooting, at least execution is really good. Yeah. And you're going off like the Thomas Lilly theory of um, your, your lifts on the program, uh, lifts on the platform are an average of your lifts in training. So it's like if you're technically perfect at least and you're stopping a little bit shy, at least the movement pattern's fucking great. Yeah. And then when it comes to peak time, it's like, hey, motherfucker, like that was too I had to pick this up once, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Send it. Yeah. Um, so look, a good coach using a percentage model can do that very effectively. I would pr probably say it increases unnecessarily the amount of work the coach has to do and the amount of weekly changes that coaches have to do. But I know coaches who actually like that because they feel like they're giving more value because they have to do more on a program. Um, and a lot of people get uncomfortable when it's just like run a system. Um, it's the same like when we talk about like 
writing a program from scratch for every client because you never want to use a template. It's like you can mold the template to suit an individual and actually it'll probably on average be better over time because you've refined a, uh, a, a something that works. Yep. Whereas if you're starting from scratch every single time, it's like how many more variables are you then adding in that may not work? So we're very systems driven too. So there's that lens to see that through as well. Um, and if you're a younger coach, I think you should be systems driven because you don't have the experience to make on the fly decisions just yet. Yeah, definitely. So again, taking that all into account, we still lean towards rep and reserve, but we're very aware that there are limitations to that as well. So then we started to look at, all right, what's the best fucking way to implement this? How do we actually get people in the gym following a system that works? We're probably going to need both some way, shape or form. So I think you came across the, the quantifying hypertrophy yeah. reps um, by Krieger around the same time. Yeah. Was sort the, of like, Oh, this is interesting. Effective rep principle got me onto this rabbit hole of looking at this stuff and quantifying yeah. hypertrophic load, hypertrophic volume load. Yeah. Which is the amount of stimulating reps in a set that would cause the most hypertrophy depending on the load and the rep in reserve. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we, we kind of took that model and went, all right, how do we, how do we build something out of this? Mm. So what we kind of learned from then was the, um, do you want to try and pronounce that? Uh, is this old mate? Yeah. The one that you yeah. could remember. Berziki. That's all I'm going to do. Berziki. The Ziski, I don't know. I'm not a. It's it seems Eastern European. That's yeah. <laughs> Old mate, we'll go Brzezinski. Yeah, that'll do. I'll, I just like that you said it first because it's always me. <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna tell me. No one's gonna bag me for this because I'm. I'm pretty sure no one would know how to pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like um, So he had a model where predict it predicted one RM. Hmm. Uh, it's important to identify that there's actually I think three of them. Um, there's three formulas that can be used and they all kind of put out, I think it's again around that 3% difference over the, the three variables. So just in that itself, we know that there is a limitation to even predicting percentage one RM numbers because the calculators got some built in issues with it. Um, so the next thing that we kind of found with that was like Krieger had refined the equation to include uh, so he took this equation, allowed it to include the rep and reserve, which was a huge game changer for us. It was like, okay, now we can actually prescribe a load based on the rep and reserve that we want someone to be at ish. Uh, that ish is very important because we don't want to prescribe a very specific load because we know that then takes away the auto regulation benefits that we have. So essentially we're now looking at, we've got a starting point that we expect this person to be able to lift based on the RIR that we're prescribing. Uh, the hypertrophic reps concept. So we took the um, periodization model from Chad Wesley Smith and Mike Isratel from the, their book, Scientific Principles of Strength Training which was uh, um, RPE cycling is what they do. So they'll go like 
eight, nine, ten, or, or seven, eight, nine, and then wave that over six weeks and repeat those two. And I found that really effective in being the ability to compare week three and week six, where you've had that little bit of learning, you perform at a reasonable um, rep and reserve. So maybe like a rep and reserve of one, compare that to week six rep and reserve one. Did you get better or stronger or perform better across the board? Yes, you did. Program worked. No, you didn't. I fucked it up. <laughs> or something else happened outside of the gym. So the formula is in the article. I'm not going to read it out because it's in math. This doesn't work in the audio form anyway. And it is actually quite complicated. It's super complicated. It hurts my feelings. but what it does really bad memories (laughs) is allow us basically to take the loads that we've done before the loads we've got now apply a rep and reserve and spit out a number that we expect this person to be able to to lift so there's a few things that we had to do to make all of this work so it's like okay we have to set a standard to then prescribe a load over a program now most percentage-based uh, coaches will do this with the top list. And then, like I said, maybe it's an RPE or maybe it's an arbitrary. You should be able to safety bar squat 70% of what you do on a barbell. Like there's, there's things like that that people use. We wanted to go a little bit more refined than that and say, all right, let's do a testing week of all exercises and find out what your capacity is in those exercises. So we typically use... Uh, I'm pretty sure you apply it the same way, Jace. It's usually a, a one rep and reserve. Yeah, yeah, I'm not maxing out in that yeah. week. And I'll typically use a lower amount of reps than what's prescribed in the program. So if you've got eights, I might give you a five. Yeah, I tend to find that if you go three reps either side of what the what for week one rep range is going to be, that the loading is quite accurate. But if you go, say, if you're supposed to do 10s and then you put a weight on and you do like 25 reps. Yeah. So far away that yeah. you may as well just retest to put more weight on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how we, I guess, approach that. And that gives us the advantage to then test a leg extension. So it's like, what's the prescribed weight for your leg extension later in the program? Not just your big squat pattern. Um, which again, I had a few clients when we moved over to this model, get found out real quick. It was like, Oh, this is telling me to leg press 160 kilos. And I usually do a hundred. I'm like, yeah, it just means you've been sandbagging for the last six months. Mm. It's like, off you go. (laughs) And they handled the volume and got stronger. So I think the best, the best thing that this formula or system does is catches people out on their, their, their perceived level of effort versus their actual capacity for yeah, effort. Yeah. Yep. Like they're working too much off the subjectivity of the movement and they have no idea that their bodies actually can go an extra two or three gears. And it just stops the first three, four weeks of the program just being waste. A, a stimulus that's just not sufficient enough to drive any progress. It's like you're getting to week five, six, maybe seven of the program. And then it's like, oh, I finished the program now. I need a new one. It's like, you only really worked hard for three of it. Like, I don't know if that's a long enough time to drive the stimulus that we're trying to out of this program. So this now gives us one to two weeks, I reckon. And then you kind of, you know, the lens has been dialed in and gone, we're here. This is 
this is where we need to be. So the other benefit of the testing week is if you speak to most um, coaches, when they talk about deloads, it's typically like reducing sets while keeping intensity high, which is what we're trying to achieve. So testing week just happens to do that inherently. Yes. Like you work up to a heavy load and then you stop and you don't do the repeat sets that you would typically do. So there's going to be enough there to, I guess we refer to it as MV. So minimum volume. Um, but also it provides a, an introductory week to the program where you can figure out like new exercises and that type of stuff for a few sets while it's light. And then like, okay, I've got it. Sweet. Load it up. Find that rep and reserve of one at whatever rep you've been prescribed and move on. So then when, like Jay said, you're not wasting that first week trying to figure out, fuck, where do I put my shoulder to get this right? Just yeah. doesn't. <clears throat> Generally, if it's a new exercise for the, the person, so the, the, the movements that are a constant across the programs, like I'll get them to do as little sets as possible for that. Cause we've got pretty accurate data. Yep. When it's a new, a new movement, we'll probably get maybe three sets in, in and cause you've got like, the obviously the skill and the motor control stuff that's kind of building each set you've got that um you know like i guess the the fatigue management mechanisms in our body to recruit as little energy as possible so the subjective difficulty increases and then as we do the repeated bouts that repeated bout effect happens that we start to recruit everything in the synchrony that we need to move the weight so that's a better interpretation of kind of where we are so doing one set isn't sufficient like even with a warm-up so i always get them to do a couple like two to three just a psychological confidence too yeah man i've done these a few times i figured out that now it feels good and now i can really grip my teeth and actually go to a one yeah yeah that's it yeah and even if it's still nowhere near what your maximum potential is it's still closer than you would have been in that first set and that first set's too far away yeah so it's just like important to know that you know if it's a new movement we we are trying our best to get that person as close to what they're capable of, even for that given day. Yeah. So what we're then aware of is like, we knew the formula for predicting is going to be off. The speed at which someone improves is going to be variable. The auto regulation is going to be variable based on how someone feels in the day. All of those things can change and shift on a daily to weekly basis. So we need to build in safeguards to the programming that allow us to do that. Yeah. So I just did a little example of like um, someone had whatever the exercise and their testing week, they'd been prescribed three by one and they achieved a load of 115 kilos um, with one rep and reserve. So that worked out to be a predicted one RM of 125.5 for whatever that means. So their actual working program week one was five sets of five reps with a prescribed rep in reserve of four. So they went into their session that was prescribed to be 101 kilos. So you're going to round to the nearest um, 0.25 in most gyms, unless you want to fuck around with micro plates, which is probably unnecessary for 99.9% of the population. So we put hundred kilos on the bar and it feels a little bit easy, but I might do one more set just in case I build some fatigue. So do another set at 100. Yeah, no, it's definitely not a rep and reserve of four. 
I'm going to go up 10 kilos and see how that feels. Went up to 100, so 110 kilos now um, and completed the set and went, oh, fuck, I only had two in me then. That was that, I've stretched that a little bit too far. Maybe somewhere in the middle, I'll drop back to 105. So then I go, okay, so 105, I then track my top set, which was the 110. I put in what my actual rep and reserve was for that, which was two. And then the next week is going to adjust based on that data because we're prescribing based on the previous load as per the super complicated equation that we talked about earlier. <laughs> so we then take that cool. We've got a projection for the following week where we've now decreased the RIR. So we're down to three and it's given a prescription of 107 kilos. So essentially you're going to be lifting 107.5 for your first set and then see if that's an accurate three rep in reserve. Then what I did was like, all right, well, let's just test this and see if we can bulletproof a little bit. So I was like, okay, same, same scenario, but a different outcome where we went first set. Yeah. hundred feels too easy. I'm going to put 105 on straight away, straight to 105. Yep. That feels spot on. That's a rep in reserve of four. We then project that the following week to a rep in reserve of three and that predicts us to be at 108 kilos. Rounding that off to the nearest 2.5 equals 107.5. So you get exactly the same outcome, whether you put in 110 RIR at two or 105 with an RIR at four. You get exactly the same landing in the next phase, which tells me, sweet, we're on something that's going to be really consistent here. In terms of what we learnt by applying them, I give a full review of the APU uh, Melbourne, Melbourne Open that we did earlier this year. We had 14 athletes, uh, sorry, 15 athletes, and just talk about the pros and cons and the results and all that type of stuff. We had a, a really, really good outcome. I found personally that you still needed to review top sets. Um, they were probably accurate 95% of the time, but we still needed to just keep an eye on people's interpretation of what rep and reserve was and their fatigue and how it was building over time as well. I think what we missed in that phase was the education that if your last warm up feels like an RIR one and you've been prescribed an RIR one, that's where you stop. Yeah. Um, but in a comp peak scenario, it's kind of like, yeah, but the piece of paper said I have to squat this. It's like, no, 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 you have to, the rep and reserve comes first. Because Correct. if you're rep and reserve and your warm up set was this, you're gonna miss, yeah. and that's okay. gonna, it's not gonna get better. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna build fatigue, hit <laughs> hurt your confidence, all that type of stuff. Um, we also found ways, to, I guess, to mitigate. We had to drop out the testing week for some people because we had basically an 11 week turnaround for a lot of them. So we had to get from people doing physique style training to uh, being on a platform in like 11 weeks. Yeah. So there was some skipping of testing weeks in some blocks and using other data and then more using other data typically for the bigger lifts and then just like figuring it out during that first week. Yeah. It's been super subjective. Yeah. For the, for the accessory work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think like we're really confident with where that method is at right now where we're using a combination of 
load and RPE and, a, and an adaptive algorithm that moves over time. I can't imagine knowing Jason and I that that's going to stay a permanent fixture exactly as it is for the rest of our careers. We haven't struck gold and there's no other way. And this is the best possible way you could ever do anything. But the skill set that we have to apply within that and the um, awareness of where the holes are. Uh, I think Jamie said yesterday, like, uh, no, every single model is wrong. Hmm. The goal is to get your model as close to right as you can. Uh, yeah. And then I would add to that the self-awareness that your model is wrong allows you to make it right. Yep. So if you know that you still need to review someone's top sets in their peaking block, you can make it right. You can, you can do that. You don't just leave your client to. Yeah. This said so, so do it. Yeah. Go and test their one RMs. Like it's, you can't do that. You still have to be aware of where the holes are going to be. Um, and if you choose to stay with percentages, my if i was going to take that approach i would be going to find out okay how do i mitigate shit days for people yeah how, am i just educating them and if you feel off i don't care if you don't hit the weight how, how what's that going to do psychologically how do i manage that um and then if i was just to do rpe it's like how do i get them educate them to the point they understand what an effective rep and reserve is or isn't based on a prescription All right. Thanks for tuning in once again. So just a reminder of all the places to find us, obviously take a screenshot, bang it up on Instagram for us and tag at STC fit at STC fit underscore learning at Ben Scott STC and at Jason Galea underscore STC. Uh, any questions or anything you can fire at us through the Instawebs as well. Um, we're probably due for a Q&A episode. So get some topics in uh, next week. We'll more than likely be reviewing what is, going to come out the same day as as this podcast will be the uh move better be stronger seminar with jordan shallow jamie smith and will crozier and the two of us so we're really excited for that and we'll we'll definitely recap for you uh that one on the next episode thanks again we'll see you next week